Welcome to the ASHP Advantage Podcast, engaging the experts on ASHP Official, featuring conversations with top-level practitioners about the latest issues in pharmacy and healthcare. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Pharmacy Hot Topics, where we sit down with our experts and discuss what's currently top of mind in the world of pharmacy. My name is Mike Gagno. I am Senior Director of Pharmacy Practice and Quality with ASHP. And joining me for today's episode are Dr. Kathy Yang, Infectious Disease Clinical Pharmacist at UCSF San Francisco Medical Center, and Dr. Sarah Parsons, Pediatric Infectious Diseases Clinical Pharmacy Specialist at the Children's Hospital of the King's Daughter. And we're here to talk about COVID-19 prevention and management in immune-compromised populations. Welcome, and thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Mike. Thank you. So I'm really excited for this episode. For those of you who have been following along, the first series of podcasts that we were doing was in follow-up to a summer meeting 2022 program. And we had these three podcasts in follow-up and there was a living handout that had been updated. That podcast in the program, I think were extremely valuable. We really explored COVID-19 and the immune compromised. We had a similar program at the mid-year meeting this past winter, and we incorporated the pediatric population. So this is the first podcast that's in follow-up to that program. And we actually have a pediatric specialist here to help us learn more about and discuss the pediatric populations. So I'm super excited. This is the first one of that series. So if you feel like, well, I just heard this podcast, trust me, you didn't. But to kick us off, I'm going to turn to Kathy to let's talk about the state of COVID. I know we kind of just did this, but what's going on with COVID cases, latest variants, anything else going on in the news? Yeah, thanks, Mike. So compared to our last podcast, so the big news, of course, is now we have ended the PHE in the United States. So we are now back to quasi normal for whatever that's worth. And so that doesn't necessarily mean COVID goes away, but it does mean that we are not searching for it as much as we would have in the past. So I think some of the big things to pay attention is the fact that from a surveillance perspective, CDC isn't really going to be counting tests anymore. So they are only counting hospitalization data and deaths. So for all of our community pharmacists out there and all our pharmacists in the field, now is your opportunity to keep your eyes wide open. So you have to sort of be the person looking out to see what COVID looks like in your community. So CDC will also be doing more wastewater tracking, which is actually really interesting because we've been doing this throughout the pandemic, but this gives us an opportunity to look at what is in the water and it gives you an idea of what is going to happen in the next few days. So, you know, usually see it in the water before you start seeing a lot of clinical cases. So it's kind of a nice neat benchmark. And they do this now for MPOX and other viruses as well. And if you go to the CDC dashboard, you can actually see the wastewater sites in your area that is collecting data. So what do we have on variants? So, you know, we talked about this last time. Arcturus, which is XBB.1.16, is sort of the slowly growing variant of the day. It used to be XBB.1.5. And so now, Arcturus is about 12.5% of our variants. As we mentioned before, it doesn't look like it is more serious. It may be more contagious, and it may have varying symptoms like eye conjunctivitis-like symptoms, so just other things to look out for. Otherwise, we're doing great in terms of caseload. We're at the lowest point since the beginning of the pandemic, so that's something to celebrate. We aren't doing so great with our boosters, though, with our vaccination rates. So now that we've simplified, or not simplified, as we'll hear from Sarah, our pediatric 
vaccines. We have to really <laughs> work on getting our booster vaccination rates up. You guys are going to love Sarah's presentation on peds because just looking at it makes your head spin. Vaccination rates go up with age. So the most vaccinated booster population is our over 65 group. And of course, our youngest population, the less than two, has the lowest rates at less than 1%. And within our pediatric population, our preteens and our teenagers, it's about five to 10% in the range area. So we have a lot to do in terms of getting boosters for our pediatric patients. And I always mentioned, you know, ethnicity data. So our most vaccinated population, of course, is our white and our lowest is our Hispanic and African-American group. So again, those are our two populations that we really need to target. Thanks, Kathy. So you mentioned the end of the public health emergency and COVID cases reporting kind of going away. What about the vaccination reporting? Is that something the CDC will continue to plan to report out? Yeah, so that is still something that they are collecting and they are working with different local health jurisdictions as well as the registry data to grab that. So that is something that they will still have. Okay, good to know. Okay, well, speaking of the updates, and Kathy, we'll keep it with you for right now to talk about the adult population. What's changed with the vaccines? Yeah, so we talked about this last time. I get the easy job. Everybody needs a booster. So the easy part of the recommendation is that it doesn't matter what you got before, whether or not you were fully vaccinated with Moderna or Pfizer, or you are only partially vaccinated or even unvaccinated, it doesn't matter everybody needs one booster. So the people who need the second booster then in the non-immune compromised space are the ones that are greater than 65, and they have this option to get a second bivalent booster after four months. And this recommendation for a booster for everyone is the same regardless. You got Moderna, you got Pfizer, you got Novavax, or you got J&J. Everybody needs a booster. So relatively simple. Farah, can you walk us through what's changed in the pediatric population? So in the world of non-immunocompromised children, so your portion has to be greater than or equal to six months because we can't vaccinate in patients who are younger than that. It's going to vary based off your age. It's also going to vary based off if you were unvaccinated or you've received a vaccination previously with monovalent and or bivalent. So essentially, if you're unvaccinated, you're only really going to focus on Pfizer as well as Moderna, the mRNA vaccines, because there's not a whole lot. We are very limited by age when you go into some of the other vaccinations. And, you know, of course, now we have all the colors that we have to think about in pediatrics as well. So the Pfizer maroon, if you're unvaccinated between six months and four years of age, you're going to get three doses of bivalent. And if you're Moderna, then you're going to get two doses of the bivalent. And then now the thing that has really changed versus the younger population getting the three and the two. And the way I always try to remember this is, you know, your first flu vaccination, you have to get a dose and then a, an extra dose after that. So that's kind of a way to relate this to families as to why you don't just do what the other age groups do. So the place has been really tricky is between four and five, because you are going to not only change vaccination products between, I'm just going to refer to these in colors, because I think that's by far the easiest way to remember it. So from a Pfizer perspective, if you think of colors, six months to four years is going to be the maroon. And then the five to 11 is going to be the orange. So if you're five years and you're going to get one dose of the bivalent, if you're six to 11, one dose of the bivalent, if you're greater than equal to 12, you're going to get a dose of the adult, essentially the gray. Moderna is going to be very similar with the five-year-olds. You're still going to get two doses 
of one and two. With six to 11, you're going to get one dose, 12 and older, one dose. The thing that has really changed is previously, they would say, if you're going to turn from the age of four to five in the middle of your vaccines, and let's say for simplicity, because we'd like some simplicity, for simplicity, that you're getting bivalent. So you're getting a dose of, let's say you get your first maroon dose, your second maroon dose, and then little Sally turns from four to five. So it would make sense, right? She's five to give her last dose of the orange. And previously we would do that. But with the update in April, it's now actually stated that if you start on one of those products that you continue to finish it. So for children who are going to turn between four and five in the middle of the dose series that you follow the recommendations based off the start of their age. Okay. My head's spinning. Intuitive to a lot of people because in my mind, it's like, well, if you turn five, you would get this five-year-old dose. And that was flexible previously. And now it's actually changed to be stated that you finish what you started at the beginning, what your age was then. So I think that's very confusing to a lot of clinicians specifically, because it's like, well, why wouldn't you give the one that's appropriate for their age? And I think that statement was made because of so much confusion and so many questions that came out with having that vagueness there, which is really interesting. But the goal of this was to simplify the amount of vaccinations that are required. And I think that they did that well for that, you know, greater than equal to six years of age group. But it's sometimes a little bit more confusing when you still have to have the three with Pfizer or the two with Moderna. And then when you get in that four to five age group, it has been so confusing and I've gotten so many questions. But at least now there's a specific answer, although people don't like it. I have a question for you, Sarah. That really helps me a lot. If there's one thing I remember from this podcast, it's going to be finish what you started, which is not what it was before. Can you comment about the interchangeability of the vaccines? So yeah, there is a lot more lead way, as you would expect with a lot of the vaccines, most of the data, most of the known variations between you can do one or the other is primarily in the older age groups. So it's interchangeable of the mRNA vaccines, you can do Pfizer, you can do Moderna, you can interchange them, whatever your bivalent dose is, if you need a booster, etc, which we'll talk about, then you can just go ahead and give that bivalent dose if they haven't had one doesn't matter which one you use. But in the younger groups, it tends to be more specific. If you start with one, you continue and you finish with that one. It doesn't mean that when they, you know, transition to another age that you can't utilize another vaccination, but you really want to start with one and then end with one in that younger age group. I think Kathy said it during the last podcast, just put the poster on your wall and refer to that because off the top of your head, good luck. An ongoing joke. I mean, I... And like the person everybody asks questions to, it's me and, you know, my ID partner, we're kind of our COVID crew. And we did have like a COVID cove, but, you know, that was apparently frowned upon, so we couldn't do that anymore. (laughs) It's just a fun name. But I'm supposed to know the answers to all these. And people ask me, like, I have this patient, this is a scenario, what am I supposed to vaccinate them with? And I'm like, oh, hold on. And I have to like flip through my papers. And they're like, you don't know this? And I'm like, no no one does. Literally no one does. And I don't trust that I'm going to give you the absolute correct answer because it changes so frequently. And it's so complex that... I just want to make sure I'm following it. Sounds like we have more podcasts to record in the future on the topic to make sure we're up to date. (laughs) To make it simple, I will say to simplify it, is if you have a patient who is greater than equal to six months to four, who's never been vaccinated, they need three bivalent Pfizer, two of the Moderna, or they need at least one of the bivalent Pfizer or Moderna if they're older than that. So... That makes it a little more simple until we work into that immunocompromised group a little later. Well, 
Speaking of which, you know, the podcast is supposed to focus on, you know, these special populations like pediatrics and pregnancy lactation and immune compromise. So, Kathy, what are we seeing for the immune compromised patients, at least the adult population? Yeah, so I have the easy job again. If you are immune compromised, you are allowed the second booster after two months. This is different from the 65 and older group, which is four months. This is now two months. So if you've never been vaccinated, though, or if you are, you know, post stem cell transplant and in the super high risk population where you have to start over, then you can get three. So that's kind of the new change. The one thing I think that is a little bit confusing is, you know, the second dose for the immune compromise, it's at two months, but there is a sort of footnote in there about you know, future doses every, you know, two months later at the discretion of the healthcare provider. That sounds great. I think that might be hard to operationalize for some pharmacies or even some healthcare providers in terms of, does that mean I get a booster every two months? I don't think so. There's no data on what is the right number or how often or that you need to do this. I think this might be hard for some pharmacies to operationalize because, you know, when you go onto a screener and there's a guideline in terms of what did you get before, it may take some discussion with the pharmacist and whether or not that person needs the second booster or should get the second booster or third or fourth. N plus one, where N is the number that you've currently had. All right. So for our pediatric populations, I'm almost ready to ask Sarah, what's the recommendation for immune compromised pediatric patients? As far as boosters go, it was pretty straightforward with the update that was in April. Five is that weird transition age, but let's say you are five. Then if you're unvaccinated and you're going to go down that path, you're going to have three, one, two, three of the orange doses. This is for the five-year-olds and then also for the six to 11-year-olds. So essentially five to 11 is where the orange Pfizer comes in. So you get three of those doses. And then eight weeks after your last bivalent dose, you're going to get your booster dose. And for the greater than 12 is going to be three doses, essentially, and then a booster dose eight weeks later. And Moderna is still going to be three doses and then a booster eight weeks later. So that's pretty straightforward. If you have been previously vaccinated, I'm going to go back to the six months before, I promise. That's really the confusing part. But if you have been previously vaccinated, it's going to depend on what product you were vaccinated with and how old you were when you were vaccinated. So you were vaccinated with Pfizer. So let's say you had one. The goal is you're going to end up with essentially three. Just think about it like that for the Pfizer. So if you had one vaccination of monovalent or two of monovalent or three of monovalent or three of monovalent, and then you already had that bivalent booster before, then you're going to get a booster. If you had the one dose, you're going to get two doses of bivalent and a booster. So you just kind of work your way down. I know this is super confusing to say, even more so than even looking at it. So I know that, so bear with me. But that's why I said it's so important. And as Kathy said, to have those charts with you, because it's very, very hard to explain without seeing it, like in an actual graphic. And there are multiple graphics out there. There's going to be one that comes out in our living handout, which is going to be helpful. That'll be updated. There's some through the American Academy of Pediatrics, which I have no ties to financially, but I will just say it is a very useful one. And sometimes it's a little bit more useful than some of the ones that come out through the CDC in the table format. For the five-year-olds, you're going to go kind of down the same path. It's very similar. You're going to make sure if you've got whatever you've had, you're going to end up getting the equivalent of the bivalent dose to meet that number that you should be getting. 
and then you're going to get a booster eight weeks later. What really made people upset is when these recommendations came out about finally we have an approval for pediatric patients to have a booster. What didn't come out initially was their six-month or four-year-old patients who are immunocompromised. So it just left a very vulnerable population kind of hanging there. Like you're not allowed to have a booster but we know that you probably need one. So it made some families specifically within our institution and within people that I you know, know and take care of very upset. And I think that push and from a lot of other organizations putting pressure on actually came out with and made them updating to where it's like, okay, now essentially the same thing. So in eight weeks, you are going to get the same vial color, a booster eight weeks post your last bivalent dose. And then we have the same caveat which is the additional booster doses are going to be based off whether or not you meet that criteria and it's based on clinician judgment. Wow. So a lot to take in. But as you noted, the living handout will have updated charts and you know absolutely find a reference, another source of information that's reliable and kept up to date. So thank you for that recommendation. The next vaccine question will be sort of a transition. So one last question on vaccines in pediatrics. What about those with a history of MISC? So that's a great question because you've heard me say multiple times before, we came out pretty unscathed and very fortunate in many situations when it came to COVID in the world of pediatrics, but that will always haunt me and the experience that we had with our MISC patients because it was absolutely terrifying. So as you can imagine, families that have experienced that have a understandable fear and apprehension to actually getting the vaccine afterwards. And so this is finally addressed and essentially it's saying the risk and benefits of having MISC, and so this is someone with a history of MISC or someone with a history of myocarditis related to a previous vaccine. This is not somebody who suspected got MISC from the vaccine, which is extremely rare. You look at the benefits versus the risk of developing that. So really the goal is you want to have complete clinical recovery of anything that happened that was secondary to MISC. And one of the more common things is decreases in ejection fraction, cardiac function, et cetera. So you want to make sure primarily that you have that baseline cardiac function back to normal and that you've essentially recovered. So kind of like we say, if you've previously been infected with COVID, you want to wait until you are no longer infected, showing symptoms and you're healthy before we do the vaccination. It's very similar here. We want to make sure you're back at your normal function. So it should be that you're back at that normal recovered baseline cardiac function and that you're greater than or equal to 90 days post the diagnosis of MIS-C. I will say this is the population that we have had the most difficult time convincing to be vaccinated because they're so terrified. It was a very severe disease. Majority of the ones that we actually saw, I think there were so many more out in the community that were probably not diagnosed because they were so mild, but it was terrifying for a lot of families. So the last thing they wanted to do is give any chance, any like possibility of anything coming back. So that has been a very difficult thing to kind of overcome. But one positive thing is that the incidence of MISI actually occurring after the vaccine is extremely rare. And there's a lot of question as to whether or not it's actually fully related to the vaccine or not. So I think that that's comforting. And also the drastic reduction in MISI cases that have been reported and that have been seen, even myself personally, after getting vaccinated is essentially dropped off. So showing that if that's the thing you're afraid of in the world of pediatrics with COVID, being vaccinated is really going to help protect you from that. Great. That's helpful info. Thank you. Next topic does tie into the vaccines, but it's more of population-based. So in our patients who are pregnant or lactating, what are the recommendations for vaccination and for treatment? So I'll first start with vaccination. Do it is the best thing I can say. So this is how I get roped into, even though they're adults, 
who are pregnant, they, you know, one have a child. So that's kind of how I get roped in. Also, they also have other similarities to our pediatric patients because they're often not included in studies, which tends to be what happened as well in the beginning of the pandemic and a lot of the studies that gave us information that we've kind of built off of. And Although there wasn't a whole lot of inclusion, there's been a lot of observational data and a lot of data to build on since then, because believe it or not, even if they are not included in the studies, they still get COVID and they still have complications. So what we've actually seen, and there's been a couple different studies and there's really good data in the NIH guideline that talks about the different studies that have been evaluated looking at risk factors. And essentially a patient, even though it is rare overall in general to have severe disease complications that potentially could lead to death, patients who are pregnant are significantly more at risk. And so vaccination is really, really important. And I think one of the biggest things that you can kind of help discuss with your patients if there's any apprehension about getting vaccinated while they're pregnant is the potential protection it could have on their unborn child. So there's actually data looking at the hospitalization rate six months postpartum of the infant and women who were vaccinated actually had significantly less children who were hospitalized within the first six months after birth. So it does show that there is some form of protection with that. Also, you know, if the mom is vaccinated, you're going to have placenta transfer of those antibiotics bodies to the child as well for protection and as well as with breastfeeding. So whether or not you are pregnant, you're thinking about being pregnant or you're breastfeeding, you should be vaccinated. I'm a big believer in vaccinating just because I think back to the early days of the pandemic when we had those initial patients, the pregnant patients coming in and they were so sick. And now, thankfully, we don't see that anymore. So it's dropped off considerably, but those initial days were extremely terrifying. Also, another thing that is very, very scary is I think it's Mets and colleagues published a study in 2021 that actually looked at the amount of preterm births that occurred after infection of the mom with COVID-19. And I mean, the risk ratio was like 3.5. It was significant, the amount of increase in premature births from people who have been infected with COVID-19. So it's very concerning. And as far as treatment goes, there's not a whole lot of variations in treatment. So as far as you, of course, if you think about, you are more at risk for clots, and then you really are going to walk on a tightrope when it comes to giving anticoagulation to someone who just gave birth or someone who is pregnant, because, you know, one of the risks that is inherently associated with that in general is bleeding. So you also don't want to allow them to clot. So recommendations are probably during pregnancy to utilize one of the shorter acting ones, and then to just look at your risk and benefit afterwards for anticoagulation and the risk of bleeding. As far as treatment goes, remdesivir has been utilized and really kind of reflects what's been already utilized and safe in pediatrics and safe in infants. And remdesivir is used, you know, in infants greater than three kilos. So it's also been utilized in pregnancy, et cetera. So it is safe to use in lactation and pregnancy, as well as Paxlovid. They're both acceptable to use in pregnancy and in lactation. Molnupiravir is the only one that you really should avoid. And there's not a whole lot of use of that. I mean, especially in my area in pediatrics, there's not a whole lot of use of that, but that's really the only one that has a lot of apprehension and actually lists that you should avoid it. Varicidinib as well is another one that should probably be avoided in pregnancy and for lactation. All right, Tara, that was a lot. Clearly, we had a lot to catch up on in the pediatric population and in pregnancy and lactation. I'm going to turn back to Kathy. What does your crystal ball show you for the fall as far as any sort of commercialization? What are we expecting for a booster? Are we looking at an annual vaccine coming? 
Yeah. So my crystal ball tells me that we probably will be moving to an annual vaccination similar to flu. So, you know, should that keep people from not getting a booster now? I don't think so. I think if you qualify for a booster now, you should still get it because my crystal ball cannot tell me whether or not you will get COVID between now and fall. So protect yourself while you can. And in the fall, there will likely be new guidance on annual vaccination and there might even be a new vaccine by then. So, you know, I think that part is a wait and see. I would not delay vaccination now for those who need it in anticipation for the fall. So I'm pretty sure that if you get vaccinated now, you would still be able to get vaccinated in the fall. So with regards to commercialization, that's easy and hard. So I think for treatment, we have some time before commercialization because I think we do need to spend down the current HHS sort of stockpile. There's a lot of Paxlovid out there. And so it doesn't make sense to go to commercialization until we sort of use that up. And so I don't think we're even close to that part yet. For vaccines, we may be closer to commercialization. And again, it will depend on you know whether or not there's a new vaccine by the time we hit fall. Yeah, that's one thing. My takeaway from a recent HHS commercialization webinar was if there is a new booster, a new formulation, there will be no U.S. government supply of that, and it will automatically be considered commercial supply. Yeah. So I know there's a lot going on in the background to prepare for commercialization. Clearly, it's not something that's happening soon, at least not for the therapeutics. So stay tuned to future podcast episodes. And if you're an ASHP member or you subscribe to the Connect post, we'll continue to post information there. I'm sure we'll have an opportunity to discuss that more in future podcasts. Okay, well, I think that that's all the time we have today. I really would like to thank Dr. Kathy Yang and Dr. Sarah Parsons for joining us today to discuss COVID-19 in the immune-compromised population, and specifically within pediatrics and pregnant lactating patients. If you haven't before, I encourage you all to check out ASHP's online resources, such as the COVID-19 Resource Center. The living handout from the original webinar will be updated and posted with this podcast recording. And thanks again for joining us for this episode of Hot Topics in Pharmacy. And if you've enjoyed today's conversation, be be sure to subscribe to the ASHP official podcast for more great content. Kathy, Sarah, thank you once again for joining us. Thanks so much, Mike. Thanks, Sarah. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for the ASHP Advantage podcast, Engaging the Experts. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time for more expert perspectives on ASHP Official.